everyone. Welcome back to the Coach's Journey podcast. Robbie here, and my guest in this episode is Fiona Setch. Now, Fiona has faced situations which for many of us would seem pretty much impossible to face in her life. Um, but through those challenges, from caring for victims of the HIV and AIDS pandemic of the 80s to experiencing a devastating loss to COVID-19 through a nursing home window in 2020, life's biggest challenges, she says, have changed her. Um, and, and one of the ways they've changed her is that those hardships have given her the gift of being able to be really present, really present with people, including when they're faced with death and an ability to talk about being faced with death, which most of us simply don't have. Now she works as a professional coach. Um, she's a trainer with vast experience and, and she brings a coaching approach which has been present throughout her life to the training she gives, which includes, and we talk about this uh, in this episode, um, the work she does with healthcare professionals, whether that's in palliative care or in the training and coaching she's done to support doctors and nurses through the current global pandemic. Um, in this episode, we talk about the importance of experiential learning. Um, we talk about the curse of perfectionism. We talk about how Fiona uh, works with people to improve their confidence and get a little granular there. And and also we get into detail on the structures, the ways she, she works with um, people in her maternity coaching and retirement coaching, which are both parts of the work she does. Uh, and we talk quite a bit about supervision for coaches and for healthcare professionals, and uh, in, in, in particular, the supervision that you can get when you do supervision. Um, Fiona's talent for writing um, has also led to a forthcoming new book that tells stories about the unique moment in time we've all been living through for the last 18 months and more, um, interwoven with the coaching strategies that she's honed over a fascinating career. Uh, the provisional titles that she gives in this episode are great, whether that's different um, boats, same storm, or something about how to keep calm and carrying on uh, carry on amidst everything. Um, it's also worth saying that Fiona has written an ebook on interview skills, which has had she says, um, you know, between when, in fact, between when she sent me the document uh, or when she wrote the bio that she sent me and and um, uh, and when we did this episode, uh, even more downloads of her ebook have happened so that it's now over 325,000 downloads, which is really, really amazing. One of the things that I love about uh, having the conversation with Fiona is that we get to have conversations about some of the things that I am really fascinated by and interested in. Um, she uh, talks so passionately about Ben Zander um, and, and Ben Zander's uh, book, The Art of Possibility, and some of his videos and, and thoughts and interviews have been amazingly transformational for me as well, um, especially The Art of Possibility, which he wrote with Rosamund Stone Zander. Um, we talk about death and dying. Um, as we've already said, and then regular listeners will have heard me talk before about how I've found awareness of our own mortality to be an incredibly powerful thing to bring into our coaching, but also an incredibly powerful piece of work for us to do on ourselves. And she talks in particular about an amazing course that she did with the Terence Higgins Trust, um, including an exercise where you lie down while someone reads your eulogy, which yeah, still is, is so striking um, for me to think about doing. Um, and we talk about poetry and, and uh, those that, that don't follow me directly on, on LinkedIn or haven't been on my website recently, there are a couple of, of poems that I've shared over the years, um, one called Waiting for God's Wind, which you can find on at RobbieSwaleCoaching.com. It's one of the most recent things I published there. And I think there's something really amazing about poetry as a medium. And I've been kind of in my own work on myself, been been 
leaning into understanding that more um, in the last year or so. And um, Fiona reads a poem in, in this episode, which I think really demonstrates how that, that medium of poetry can just communicate so much in such a short space of time. So before we dive into the episode, I just wanted to say that now is a great time to join the Coach's Journey community. Um, the Coach's Journey community is essentially a, a flexible, open-ended group coaching program that you can join and leave at any time. Um, it's the most flexible and in some ways the most affordable uh, way of working that I've ever offered. Um, you can join from as little as about £10 a month. And the reason that it's a good time to join now is that the September call um, on the 7th of September at 5pm UK time, their two-hour calls, um, is available to all members. So you can join at the £9 nine plus VAT a month uh, level, which is the gold membership level. Come along to that call. And if you don't like it, you don't have to come along again. You can just cancel that membership. No hard feelings. That's I wanted to make um, a way of working that, that made my coaching uh, really accessible to, to anyone who wanted to join in. And hopefully um, it does that. So if you're interested in that, um, you can find out more at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. You can read about the other membership levels too, which involve... Um, more calls, um, more group calls every year or sometimes some one-on-one -on -one work with me too. Um, but the calls, we get into all kinds of parts of, of, of what it's like to uh, live, work as a coach. We'll talk about uh, business development. We can talk about um, doing the deep work on ourselves uh, and, and, and you'll get a chance to connect with um, some other amazing coaches who are, who are trying to build and do this amazing work too. So you can find out more about that again at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. Um, and uh, thanks in particular to um, uh, members of the community, uh, Alex Swallow, Joey Owen, Ken Bruren and David Chalmers for their ongoing support. Um, at, at, uh, you, can, you sign up for the community at patreon.com slash the coach's journey where you can also learn about being a supporter where you uh, give a certain amount of money every month um, and you get some benefits for that too. So that's all available at patreon.com slash the coach's journey or more about the community at the uh, journey.com slash community. Um, but uh, that's enough from me on that for now. Um, and I hope uh, you really enjoy the conversation uh, that I had with Fiona Sech. Fiona, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. Hello, Robbie. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's lovely to have you um, on the on the on the show. And you came as a, a, a recommendation from one of the other guests, friend of the podcast, Marianne Craig. Um, and she she said of you, she's an inspirational public speaker and has a lovely Geordie accent as part of her recommendation to me. And so you, I, I know the last is true already from just saying hello. <laughs> um, and when and just as a little aside, actually, just while I while I think of it, you know, we're recording this in August and I'm just about to go. Uh, I haven't said this to you off air, but I'm just about to go. Um, over August to visit first my parents in North Yorkshire where they live and, and then my um, my wife's parents and I can't wait to get out of the city and when I was looking at where you live because I'm curious about that kind of thing you're very much within reach of some, one of my favorite parts of England uh, Northumberland and I just had this flash when I was looking at that and reading about how much you know you connect with that part of the country um of kind of envy that you're so close to that amazing rugged coastline have you managed to get there during the last 18 months or so of, oh yes i i um moved back to the northeast after living away for about nine ten years um i moved back to the northeast in 1997 and i would call myself a born again geordie actually because 
I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I loved living in London and the other places that I've lived. Um, but I absolutely love being back in the northeast. It's it's the most beautiful place. And if anybody who's listening has never been before, it's you know, it's a great place to visit. We have everything, we have art, we have culture, we have beautiful rugged beaches, like you say, and everybody's really friendly. Um, there was a recent, I think there was a it was a, a poll last week about the most popular accent, which apparently is the Northeast accent, the Geordie accent. So yeah. It's a great accent. Um, and you're right, it, it is a part of the country that just has so much to offer. And, uh, you know, there's lots of bits of it that are like this. I have a particular soft spot for, for Northumberland because um, we used to go there on holiday when we were little, but uh, when I was little. But, you know, when I... Sometimes, I think there are parts of the UK, um, and it's even such a small country, and it must be true 10 times as much in, in, in lots of other countries, where you go to them sometimes and you kind of forget that this country has those those kind of spectacular landscapes and you know I, I think I get you I remember I took somebody to the Lake District once for the first time and they were like this is like New Zealand and yeah it's just you know a yes. few hundred miles up the M6 and um I think have definitely the Roman think, wall yeah and, and those amazing forts and the castles it's a yeah lovely, lovely angel lovely. of the north we have yeah we have amazing things I was um very uh delighted to be an ambassador for the Olympics in Newcastle in 2012. We had, um, we were a satellite venue, St James's Park, where our beloved Newcastle United play. Um, and um, there was football happening. So I was an ambassador um, and I, I I used to meet and greet people and show them, talk to them about the city and what are the delights could hold and check their tickets and send them in. Um, I would have taken them on a walking tour if I could. I, I just love meeting meeting people. And I was actually, there's a beautiful place called Annick Gardens. I don't know if you've ever been there. I was a volunteer there for a while as well, which I absolutely loved. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some great places. We could just talk about the Northeast all, all, yeah, all the time, Robbie. <laughs> We could. Um, let's. It's tempting. It's tempting. But let's not. Let's. Like, there's so much because there's so many parts of your journey and story that I, I'm really looking forward to hearing about. Um, maybe though, as is the case in almost all of these podcast episodes, we should start from. I'm sure we'll go back further than this into your story as well because there's so much that connects um, together. But when did you first come across coaching? in the way that we're, we, you and I would talk about it yeah. now. So I um, moved back to the Northeast. I had a first career as a nurse. I'll start with that. So I, um, well, let's go back before then. I've always been an incredibly curious person who asked lots of questions. And I was always the sort of person who people would ask if I could help them. I, I, I think I was a natural teacher without realising it. I would help people learn, which really is the essence of coaching, asking questions. Um, so I um, I did my nurse training in the old apprentice model and absolutely loved being a student nurse. And I did Burns nursing when I qualified for a couple of years in Newcastle. And then I went to Saudi Arabia for a year. Um, and that was really interesting. And um and I also learned to scuba dive, which was a lifelong ambition. So that was brilliant. And then I went to London for six months to study a course in HIV and AIDS. And I was there for six years. And I'll, I guess I'll come back to that. Mm. Um, but I 
then moved back to the northeast um, and I was just starting a new job as a staff development officer at Marie Curie Centre at a hospice in Newcastle. Um, and my mum um, had, she was very ill. She had brain hemorrhages and um, she wasn't able to live in a house anymore. She had a right-sided weakness and an electric wheelchair. So she came to live with my husband and I and um, she came home for six months and with a care package and I just came back from a, um, a day at work at Marie Curie and realised that I was working at work, then coming home, listening to the carers, looking after her. And I just felt like there was too many plates spinning. And I picked up a magazine. I think it was a She magazine. And there was an article in about life coaching. And I read this article and it was, you know, those light bulb moments. And I thought, ooh. I think this is what I need. So I contacted the gentleman who'd written the article um, and he put me in touch. There were, you know, there were a few different places I could contact. So my first coach was a wonderful lady called Jilly Shaw, who I had coaching with, um, and she helped me sort my life out. And then she said to me, I do not think this would be something that, that you, you were doing a lot of this already in your job. So um, I thought about it, um, um, and then I was I was busy studying uh, courses in, in teaching adults, certificate in education and certificate in training practice. And then Marie Curie had an organisational restructure after five years working there, and they wanted they, they were making my job redundant, and they wanted they wanted me to be a regional training manager, travelling around Liverpool, Bradford. Um, and Newcastle and looking after providing training for the community nurses and I thought I'd rather watch paint dry than travel around and buy other people in to do what I love doing so um, at the same time people found out I was being made redundant and I guess I was headhunted to work in several organisations I'd already thought about coaching and I'd done a um, done a an old um, online course. I say online because it wasn't like online now would be with uh, Zoom, yeah. etc. Um, on life coaching, um, and I'd had been having coaching myself for a changed coach. I had I had about three coaches before I met Marianne. Um, so I experienced coaching for myself, and that's what made me think about I want to be a coach. And then I started reading about it, and then I realised actually I'd been using a coaching approach for years. I'd been using a coaching approach when I was a student nurse. I'd been using a coaching approach when I was a staff nurse, when I was a charge nurse. And, um, yeah, so. And, and where, there's so many things I could ask about in there, um, but where, I guess, where do you think that coaching approach that you've been using all those years already came from? Or, like, how, had it just evolved? Or, or do you think there was some influences on it? Or where did you think it came from? I think, um, I think I was really, I think I was really interested in in people and how they did things. Um, and rather than telling people what to do, I like to find out how they might do it. So I think I probably learned quite early on um, to ask questions. Maybe it was my, my granny's influence. I don't know if she wanted to be a nurse and couldn't be a nurse. Um, 
she had to be a secretary because she, she couldn't go off and train to be a nurse. Um, and I know that um, when I went to London, I, I, I went to London for six months to study a course in HIV and AIDS. It was at the time when the AIDS pandemic in, in the early so 1988, when there were the, the iceberg adverts, do you remember those? The icebergs and the tombstone adverts mm. about AIDS for the government, the horrible adverts they were. They, they terrified everybody, and it's never a good way to learn by scaring people, is it? Anyway, I went for six months and I got very involved in HIV work um, and volunteering in some of the HIV projects. Um, um, and I, I moved to an organisation called London Lighthouse, which is an AIDS hospice. And I was the equivalent of a ward sister there. And working alongside people my age that were dying, it just made you really think about life. Um, and we celebrated life and death really openly. So what was different about HIV work compared to other work that I'd done was um, when I was training as a nurse, you used to get into trouble if you talked to patients about death. Mm-hmm. Um, relatives used to, it would it, people wouldn't want their relatives to know that they had cancer and they were dying, for example. Whereas that's very much changed over the years, and I think HIV work had a lot to do with that because there, be, there, there became an honesty in talking about your condition and finding out about it, which probably was in parallel with the internet and resources and finding out more about health um and the dynamics of um relationships changed as well within healthcare i think so patients became more empowered and and, and had the right to ask questions that was probably because of the client group with with hiv younger people who were more knowledgeable and wanted to know and have more control over their illness but i think it made me realize what i really wanted to do with life so being alongside people that are dying um and having amazingly honest conversations and just being with people, it made me think about, well, what do I really want to do? And I thought, I want to help people really enjoy their life. Mm-hmm. You know, I listened to a lot of people talk about what they wish they'd done. And it made me, it made me, it just made me think, I'm going to help people enjoy whatever it is that they want to do. So I'd always help people with jobs, interviews, or career direction. And and so I guess I I sort of dovetailed all that together and thought, well, what could I do? And and a job came up in the training department at London Lighthouse. So I thought, oh, that might be interesting. I never planned it. I've never planned any of my career at all. Mm -hmm. It's emerged. Um, So I moved into the learning development department and was uh, running HIV awareness courses and organising visits and things and doing quite a lot of public speaking. And I really enjoyed it. So I moved from nursing into, um, it wasn't called coaching, it was more staff development, but I was using a coaching approach. I learned that when I did my postgraduate certificate in coaching many years later. So, uh, yeah. And so part, of that, part of that might even just be because coaching wasn't, you know, given the timing of this, it wasn't really a thing, you know, it's kind of been defined or developed or 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 or, or kind of captured as a, as a particular set of skills or, or techniques since then in some ways hasn't it and 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 I guess one of the things I've noticed from from this podcast has been there are there is a group of people who you know over the first I don't know between 1990 and 2005 or whatever came to coaching and 
often they had a story a bit like yours, which is they were kind of already one way or another. They'd they'd been working those skills, and then they found this thing, which it turned out was would use those skills in a in a yes in, in a new way or in a more concentrated way. I, I want to yes. rewind a little bit, Fiona, just because like it. You know that that work with London Lighthouse and and HIV. You know this and and what you just said about sitting with those people of your age, you know, um, who were in that in that place with that illness, which at the time, you know, it's really interesting. I, I have somebody in reasonably close to me in my family with HIV, and, and when he was diagnosed in let's say turn of the millennium, it felt like a death sentence. And actually, he's still around because the treatment has advanced so much. But but when we're talking about this in the late 80s, early 90s, that that was certainly not the case, where it certainly felt like, you know, I don't know, you can tell me if that's wrong, but it, it was like the treatment just wasn't really there, was it? So we didn't know. Um, yeah. we, we didn't know. And they were very experimental, the treatments, and it was brutal. Um, I mean, I, I, you'd co- I would come on duty when I worked at, I worked at um, Westminster Hospital before London Lighthouse. And it wasn't uncommon to come on duty, to have handover and there to be three or four mainly young men who were dying and then you'd that's then you'd say someone would the, the nurse in charge would say and Frank's parents are coming down to see him they haven't seen him for 10 years since they threw him out because he was gay so then you had to welcome Frank's parents who hadn't seen Frank for 10 years now Frank wasn't the same boy that the same man that he was when he left home he probably lost all his weight looked terrible had one of the terrible illnesses and it was just it was heartbreaking really um you know think there was a program on television recently on channel four called it's a sin which really wasn't a very accurate uh, how that um how that time was so yeah it was it was it was tough actually um i learned so much um I, I mean I, I went into it because I had uh, two of my best friends at home were gay and when I heard the prejudice that people in the health service were talking about everybody was really scared and the, and I didn't know what to say so I thought I need to find out more about this and one of the things that I learned quite early on was I, I mean I had a lot of wasted arguments with people because of people's prejudice and what you need to do is listen and clarify and then just gently help them understand what what the facts are which might be the same as now actually with people who don't believe about coronavirus yeah i i don't know i think i think you're probably right and i think in a way you've actually just given like a i read a, a book last year about kind of how do you talk to people with whom you really disagree <laughs> And they said, if, well, if, if one of the things you want to do is, is change people's minds, the first thing you do is you really listen to them and you yeah. clarify. And, and, and only then, once you've done that, do you start to introduce these bits of information. So it sounds like you learned that, like, not the easy way, <laughs> but you'd learned it. When I used to come back home, people used to, and I used, there was this night, nightclub that, I used to, that, that, that lots of people used to go to, and I would pop in to say hello to people. People I hadn't seen for ages, what are you doing? And I'd tell them and they'd say, oh, what are you doing that for? And I was like, because I really enjoy it. But there was, it was different to any other, obviously to them. It, and so I spent a lot of my time talking about it and, and educating people. Um, so naturally, when I moved into education, it seemed to be 
you know the thing to do yeah. um, and I and I found my niche I absolutely loved it I love facilitating training coaching I actually also trained as a clinical supervisor with healthcare professionals um, and supervision I've been involved in supervision for the last 35 years in, in supervising nurses and providing supervision for all sorts of people working in healthcare and also I'm a coaching supervisor so um, I have my own supervision. I've had it for 36 years. And I think it's absolutely essential to any of the work that anyone in, in a caring environment does that we have proper supervision. Yeah, and, and I agree. But but I think it's really useful to hear you talk about why you think that's so important. Um, Because we all have blind spots because... Um, because we're human beings and the work that we do is about connecting with other human beings. And I think it's good to have someone asking you questions about things and it's good to be able to talk in a safe space. So I think, yeah, um, I think it's, I think it's essential. It's never mandatory in nursing. It's never been mandatory. And there's the problem. Yeah. In certain 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 professions, it is. It's it, it's mandatory in social work. It's mandatory in in counselling, I believe. Yeah, I think so. And in midwifery, but it's never been mandatory in nursing. So it's always icing on the cake. But like coaching's icing on the cake in organisations, and it's not mandatory that coaches have supervision. So you know, a lot of people are practising without. And yeah, I wouldn't. Not something I would recommend. No, it's just just too many. You know, even after many years, there's too many times when, yeah, when it's incredibly valuable that I would mm. never want to stop, really. Um, mm. Too many, like, and, and again, I think it's also, I mean, maybe maybe someone like you who obviously loves learning, you know, you sent me an amazing list of some of the training you've done over the years, and it's like, there's so much in there, right? You obviously love love learning, and that curiosity comes through, and, and I'm the same. Certainly, if you've got that desire to learn supervision is an amazingly rich way to learn about the craft at least i know this from coaching i imagine it's the same with nursing you know but it's like to learn about the craft that you're doing and to learn about yourself so that you can do that craft there's a, um an inspirational speaker that i um really uh, have been very inspired by called benjamin zander he's the, the conductor of the boston philharmonic orchestra and um, I went to a leadership session while I was working at um, Marie Curie. It was a film called Conducting Business, where he talked about really, really, really connecting with why you do, why, why are we doing what we do? And, and, you know, if someone's not enjoying what they're doing, trying to connect them with, and I do a lot of that in, in the work that I do. If people are a bit burnt out or they're um, fed up with what they're doing it's to remind them of why they, they went into what they're doing and and, and he says and if, they, if you're not enjoying it get another job yeah so, yeah and, and just for any listener who hasn't uh come across Ben Zander I fully you know endorse what you just said to check him out to check out the the art of possibility the book as well which had such a massive effect on me well I have to tell you I'm going to make you very jealous here um, there's a picture back there. You probably can't. There's a picture back there. Oh, yeah. It looks like So OK magazine. Now, my 50th birthday, which was 2012, um, uh, my friend sent me an email and said, look who's coming to Newcastle. And it was Benjamin Zander. No. He was coming to Newcastle. Seriously, he was coming to Newcastle <laughs> for five days. 
and he was running work. He'd been do, working somewhere, um, doing a conducting um, something in Europe, and he'd then come to Newcastle. And he was at the university, and he was facilitating workshops for musicians, and anybody could go. Mm. <laughs> I practically stalked him, honestly. <laughs> I contacted all the people I knew that had been on my courses that I'd, I'd shared the video with, um, and um, he, you know, when you meet somebody that's your that that's that you're really inspired by. He was even better than you could have possibly expected. He was amazing. He really was. He gets people to connect with what they're doing, that they're enjoying what they're doing, and he and he and he brought people to the front to to play their instruments in front of an audience and got them to think about what is it about the music that 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 the, the, the that the uh, the writer wrote about this music, um, and and really connect. Oh, he was amazing and. Um, he thanked me for my contribution, which moved me yeah. um, because I've been to quite a few of his sessions. <laughs> that card there is my, my friend, one of my best friends, my, made me a card. She took a picture that I had of the, the two of us and she, she put it as like an OK magazine. Yeah. And then inside she put, but Benjamin Zander tries to escape from crazed Geordie woman. <laughs> but it, it was, honestly, it was just... It was fabulous, and there's a TED talk. His TED talk is amazing. If if if, if people want to to find out about him, uh, where he he aims to get everybody to enjoy classical music, and it's about it's about eighteen minutes of pure magic. So good, isn't it? Yeah. And um, uh, are you musical, Fiona? Do you have that as well to to, well, to get from Ben I, Ben's workshop? I burst into song all the time when I'm training or coaching and um, not necessarily coaching but um when, when I'm part of different groups um I love music I've been part of a choir um my mum was very musical she was a music teacher I played the recorder probably like everybody listening to this podcast <laughs> when I was at school my son's very musical he's he's a musician um and uh, he's 17 and um and I love I've loved watching his development over the years so yeah, I am musical, actually. We're yeah, all musical. It, it sounds like you are. But, and it sounds like you've connected with that in lots of ways. And I love the idea of bursting into song. Uh, yes. That happens in the workshops. Can't be enough. Yes. That's like, it's quite a, like a, one of the, the, the art of possibility stories that I tell most often to clients is the rule number six story. Oh, right? yeah. It, it sounds, you know, I, I, maybe I will spoil it now for listeners, but it's like, the, the punchline of rule number six, go and watch, you can watch Ben Zander telling the story if you put rule number six into YouTube. But um the, the punchline is don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. And it sounds like you live rule number six in your workshop. Oh, I do. In fact, when I watched him, when I went, when I went to Marie Curie, London Lighthouse was this amazingly flamboyant place. You could be open. People took their dogs to work. It was just colourful. Uh, there were people from all over the world who worked there. It was amazing. And then I came to the Northeast, which I loved, and I worked at Marie Curie, which was a bit twin set and pearls. And it was a bit, it was so different. And I felt I had to really, I had to be a different me. So I'd been this really, I'd been, I'd been able to be who I was. And then I had to fit within a role of professional uh, staff development officer. Um, and I felt really constrained. And then I, about a year into the role, I guess I was a bit like a peony rose unfurling. And about a year into the role, I watched Benjamin Zander and then I kicked the door down and I was able to be me again. <laughs> that was that was brilliant. And, and, and I, I came back and I, 
I was um, the the centre manager bought the, the film that we'd watched because I went on about it so much and we used it at every available opportunity to help people understand and, you know, be able to be free, really. So rule number six was really important to me. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Again, Fiona, there's so many places we could go, but I just want to rewind us a little bit um, because you talked about why you ended up doing the the work at London Lighthouse and some of the impact that's had, that had on you. And it's kind of, it's very striking, you know, that, that kind of, that idea, especially like, like I reflected or mentioned already of sitting with people. I mean, the story about the, the, the man's parents who haven't seen him for a long time and how changed he is and all those kind of stories. You mentioned that, you know, you spoke to people a lot about their lives in that time. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, were there patterns that emerged in those conversations about people's lives and how they thought about that at this at, at the end of it, you know, was that were the things that you remember that that came out again and again, or particular examples that were really stark for you? I think being able to be present with somebody, which really equipped me for being a coach. I think being able to be alongside somebody as they were dying, you know, that might have taken days and weeks sometimes, but being able to talk about let them talk um, and they talk about their lives, they talk about their, their, their careers, the things they wish they could do. Um, and I, I remember there was a ballet dancer. He was one of the first patients I looked after. And he said he felt like he was standing in the wings, waiting to go on for the biggest solo, solo performance of his life. And he didn't know what it would be like, but he knew he'd have a good curtain call. And yeah, I think I think not being afraid, I think death and dying, I think what HIV and AIDS provided was two of the biggest taboos, sexuality and death and dying. Um, we have during this current, the last 18 months, we've had a lot of talk about death and dying because of the COVID pandemic. Um, and again, it's, you know, it, it's not something that we tend to talk about, is it? So I think it gave me the gift of being able to be present and to be able to talk about it. So I've, you know, I'm, I'm the sort of person who gets asked to write a eulogy. Um, when I was at London Lighthouse, we had what we call an after death care. So we had um, we had our own mortuary and viewing room and the nurses looked after that. So people would come and see their loved ones. Um, I led several funeral services, carried coffins, wrote eulogies. Um, you know, amazing. And and the funerals were the sort of funerals where I remember the, the one that I remember most vividly was it was an ordinary coffin, but it had chicken wire on it. And everybody was given a rose or a, a daffodil or a brightly coloured flower. And everybody went and touched the coffin and, and put the flower in so that after the service, the coffin went up and it was just this mass of flowers. And that was all about that person's life. They planned that. So I think being able to talk about something which seems the most difficult to talk about, which, you know, is probably planning your own death, planning your own funeral service. Now, the reason why I'm so, so comfortable with it is I did an amazing course um, run by the Terence Higgins Trust um, 
And and I remember it vividly because before I went on the course, when people used to ask if they could talk to me about planning their funerals, I used to get this golf ball in my throat and I'd make, I'd make a nursing excuse like I was too busy and I'd come back um, and hope that they would change the subject. And then I went on this amazing course and there was one weekend all about death and dying. And then after that, I was able to just be because I, on that workshop, we, we, we did a whole load of exercises around thinking about your own death and writing your own eulogy and lying down while somebody read it. And it was amazing, really. Wow. So I then went back into work on the Tuesday and I sat with Franzi was called and you wanted Pink Floyd and Lilies and you know, I was able to be there and, and, and be there rather than doing something. And I think as coaches, the biggest thing we offer our clients is a space and our ears and our heart. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, it's it's kind of almost a bit trite of a thing to say, but it feels true. It's like you've also just kind of, there's another lesson about coaching, I think, in that story you've just told, which is why we have to do the work on ourselves, whether that's supervision or something else. Because what, like, what an amazing story. And it sounds like it happened so quickly that it, it like the cause the causality is is clear that it was doing that work on that weekend of of the oh, Terence yeah. Higgins course that enabled you then to be there definitely with with you know that that person and I think that it is yeah it's like it is those questions are worth asking ourselves you know all those questions but I mean what are, have you ever like I mean phew, that, that workshop, right? Write the eulogy I've done with clients before, I've done for myself. Lie down while someone reads it to you. Have you repeated that in workshops since? I'm going to be come, no. trying, to, trying to come up with a... No, no, I haven't, I haven't that. done that. I haven't done no. that myself. Um, no, but uh, yeah, it was an amazing time, really. I think as well, at the time, people who worked in the HIV units were very close because there was a lot of prejudice. And because sometimes the work was so, a bit like in coaching, you know, when you're working with a client and it might be really tough stuff and, the, and you, have, you have the session and then they go on or they, uh, or they switch, you know, or you switch off the Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably more at the moment. And you've done, you might have done some amazing work. And then, and then who do you talk? You can't talk about it, can you? Because of confidentiality. So that's why it's great to reflect. And then you can take that to supervision. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, hmm, you could go so many places from here. But maybe let's come back to coaching. We've kind of, it's kind of reappeared in our conversation. And, and, and so you, you know, you found Jilly via the article and then yes. you worked with some other coaches and you, did, you said you did a you said you did like an old online course yes. not a zoom filled one who who was that with that and... was with newcastle college oh, and then, and it was a um there was a whole array of courses in fact and in, in fact marianne craig has on her website she she has a regularly updated resource which is where you can find out about courses yeah um and and so there are lots of colleges like newcastle college in the sort of college network, further education colleges, where you could learn the skills of life coaching. And you didn't actually have to do any, it was theoretical. Um, 
And I think one of the things that I would always encourage people to do if they're thinking of being a coach is have some coaching yourself because there's experiential learning. So the adult learning cycle is the model I use for all my work um, called learning cycle. So with the way we learn best as adults is we experience, we tend to dip into reflection because it's so busy. And what coaching enables us to do and supervision is to deepen that reflection and conclude and understand sorry understand why see it through different lenses and then the most important bit is how are you going to transfer that learning back into the next experience and when you have a coach we make people accountable don't we and that's why it works so well Mm, yeah yeah completely agree um and then so then when was it that you started obviously i think you said that jilly had even given you that little like um yeah. shot of oh, maybe you should do this Fiona when was it that coaching and 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 also join up the dots a little because you said you moved into training and and development at Marie Curie or at Lighthouse and then at Marie Curie yeah I moved into learning and development at, at Lighthouse then I met my husband on a Greek island a holiday called Skiros which was one of the first holistic holidays wow so I met him there um, he was in he was from England I met him there and um, we got engaged and then decided that we would uh, move back to the north, move up to the northeast. He was from Chesterfield and, and we saved up and we went traveling for seven months. I was actually, if I think back, quite, I wouldn't say burnt out, but I'd been, I'd been around death and dying for about nine years um, in HIV and AIDS and probably. It was good to have a break. Um, and I did a lot of thinking, mainly visiting friends in Canada, Australia, New Zealand and Thailand who, I, who, I'd, who I'd worked with who'd gone back to work, back home, or they'd emigrated. So it was lovely to visit places where I used to write letters to. Mm. Do you remember the olden days when we used to write letters? I do, I remember <laughs> it well. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was nice to visit these addresses. Um, and then came back to the northeast and um, started working at Marie Curie. But I was already doing uh, training. Um, f- facilitation, I think, is the thing that I, I, I well, whether it's a, a person, which we do in coaching, or facilitating a group, um, I really, I really enjoy that. I, I love helping people learn. I love that light bulb moment. Yeah. And, and then, so when did it? come because you work for yourself now um yes when so, did so, that when and how did that happen well the, the, what enjoyed teaching and facilitation um when I was at Lighthouse I moved into the training department and they the way that they facilitated any training was very experiential and I learned how to do it and I thought oh I like this so it was getting people to do exercises and asking them questions and um, getting and, and flip charts and you know it was very low tech, very low tech, but really meaningful. Yeah, yeah. And so then now that you work, now you work for yourself. This, that's yes. you know, that's what you do. At some point, that happened. So just yes. just to join the dots, yes. how did you come to be? Um, Fiona Setch, the the coach, the the trainer outside of organisation. Okay, yes. Yeah, so um, so working at Marie Curie. So yeah, so I moved to the northeast, um, and um, I got the job. My husband's a vet, so he he got a job as well. 
And um, our plan was to see if we liked Newcastle. Um, um, but if we didn't, we might try Brighton or Edinburgh or we weren't sure. And then so we were staying at my mum's who had been looking after our cats, three cats while we were away travelling. And sadly, my mum had um, was unwell and had uh, brain hemorrhages. She was 59 and um, she was very ill in hospital and they thought she would die. She had a right-sided weakness um, and they were, they were talking to my brother and I about um, explaining the situation and and they said, have you got any questions? And I said, yes, could you refer her to Hunter's Moor Rehabilitation Centre, please? And they all looked at each other. The, 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 the nurses and doctor looked at each other and somebody said to me, did you not hear what we said? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, if she dies, cancel the referral. But I think it's really important that you refer her because she might live. Now, she lived for 23 years. So she went for she went for rehabilitation and then um, we found a house and she lived with us because she couldn't live in the house she was living in. She had an electric wheelchair, a chariot, as she called it. Mm-hmm. And she came home for, six, they thought, six months because she, she was pretty poorly. And um, she was a very tenacious, amazing lady. And uh, she lived with us for 11 years. So my work, when I started work at Marie Curie, I was working full-time, but I was also helping her facilitating her hospital appointments and and work and work and and then after about so my, so I was really enjoying my work at Marie Curie it was some national work because their head office is in London they've got hospices all around the country so I was I was doing coaching and training and supervision for the porters the cleaners the consultants fundraisers and nurses it was great I loved it and then they decided to have an organisational restructure and they made my job redundant. So as I said before, I didn't want the job that they... And, and people had hunted me. Someone had heard about the work I was doing and the Deanery of Medicine asked me if I'd do some work. I had a bit of a reputation for helping doctors that were struggling a bit during their training to be consultants. To help, I had a bit of a reputation to help them to think about how they were working and to... So, so I started doing some work with some coaching with doctors as they were training in their specialities. I didn't plan it. It just evolved. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's the second time, Fiona, that you've kind of referenced that, 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 yeah. that you didn't plan this business. It's just evolved. Yes. And I just, I think there's something to be really said for that as a way of, of running, uh, you know, perhaps any business, but certainly a business like the one that you run. And I just wonder what it's been like over the years to run a business in that way that just evolves. And yeah, what your reflections on that are? Well, there's been, well, I've really enjoyed it. For some people, it, would, it wouldn't be their way. I am um, a very fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants type of girl. Um, I'm very focused when I need to be, but I get my energy from... Um, from ideas and inspiration and possibilities, which, you know, some, if, I'm, if I'm working with somebody who likes all, to be organised and structured, we really complement each other well. And I've got a couple of, mm. I do associate work with a couple of people who are like that. Um, but I think it works for me um, and it works, it works for my clients. Where it hasn't, where it didn't work was, I mean, for the last 11 years, I've been working at a hospice in the northeast coast, in Oswald's Hospice, 
and I work there the equivalent of one day a week doing coaching and some team facilitation with the clinical staff. So when the pandemic hit last year, um, all my work evaporated, and and I and I and I understand why because because I work with healthcare because I work for myself. I wasn't really on anybody's radar. So, you know, if I'd been if I'd actually been working in a department, then I would have been one of the staff that was fur, you know furloughed or sent home or whatever. But actually, at the time, it was really helpful because um, my mum had um, she left our house after 11 years and went into sheltered housing, became independent, which was great. And then she developed dementia and she she went into a nursing home. And um, so she'd been in the nursing home five years. And sadly, she was one of the people who died in the nursing home. So the first part of the pandemic for me was seven weeks of walking to our nursing home twice a day, watching her through the window. So that was really tough. And um, so in a way, my work evaporating gave me the space to be able to, to do that and to be able to spend some time grieving. And um, yeah, but that was really tough. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that um, and that story. And especially because, it, you know, it sounds like your mum's been such a big yeah. part of your story and your life. And the irony is that um, I wanted to be, you know, I looked after people. I was very good at looking after people when they died. And, and I always thought I would be able to do that for my mum. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't able to. One of my friends, um, Kath Mannix, who wrote an amazing book about death and dying. She was a palliative care consultant. She, she said to me, do you remember all the patients that you looked after whose loved ones couldn't be there? Well, you were paying it forward and it was time for you to collect. Mm. And that was a really nice way to think of it. Um, so my work, but I haven't said that, my work's come back, which is mm. great. Supervision's never been more important. And I've had I've, I've, I've had some counselling as well. I've been working with a soul midwife because I think I was suffering from a bit of post-traumatic stress from going around to the home and watching through the window was... Yeah. it's like something out of a science fiction novel isn't it <laughs> yeah it, I mean and you know one of the tragic things is we know that yours is not the only story like that right yeah. that, 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 that there are others over the past 18 months especially in that first period I think um, yeah and yeah I guess like I, I, I want to catch that it, it's a you know, you kind of said one of the, there's a really interesting thing you said, which was, you know, how has, I can't remember what, what you said about your business now, about how it's just, you haven't had the plan. It's just kind of evolved and happened. And then I think you were kind of saying the one time it didn't work was, um, but, was, yeah. was the start of coronavirus, except I think we can kind of hear in also the way you told that story that it actually did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're right. Yeah, Not that you did. would ever like wish your work to all evaporate, but there it yeah. is. And, and that was a, time that maybe you needed that I think I, I was I've just spent four months um doing some interim work organizational development work in a local trust and I was facilitating a teams session on teams with some senior nurses in a critical care unit and one of the nurse senior nurses had had to shield and she was very reluctant to participate in the session 
And at one point she looked at the camera and she said, I felt cancelled because she was asked to shield and she wasn't able to, to look after the unit like she was. And when she looked, when she when she said that, it, it resonated for me. That's how I felt. So I, surely I took that to my next supervision session. But it was really powerful because, and then that often happens with clients, doesn't it? They will sometimes say things which really take your breath away, don't they? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been great work. I, I really enjoyed working, um, doing the work um, in the NHS that I was doing. And and I love my work at the hospices. I've done a lot of work since I've been working for myself in the hospices in the northeast and a couple down south as well, a couple of children's hospices. Because of my palliative care background, um, I've introduced supervision and done some presentation skills training and um, leadership training, which I really enjoyed. Very creative training. Um, I love um, I love creating. Yeah, and, and maybe actually just so that people who are listening can get a sense of it. Um, obviously, the last year and a half have been kind of strange. But before that, in terms of your work, how did it evolve? Like, yeah, I, I mean... I know that there are lots of organizations you've worked with. We've, we've kind of hinted at the different strands that you have to your work, but may, maybe now, but also maybe if it's, if it's more kind of normal 18 months ago, how did your work evolve to look at that point? And, and what are the strands that make it up? And how do you talk about what you do when, right. when, when, when someone asks? So I offer, I, I would do consultancy work. So, um, um so Stanislav was one of my clients for example somebody's husband worked there and had had watched his wife on courses I'd run at Marie Curie so I, I ended up going there and finding out what the uh frontline managers or phlegms as they were called <laughs> abbreviated um and and they needed some leadership development so I listened I, I I went I walked around a couple of shifts found out what they wanted and then de- developed a, um, some workshops around Corb's learning cycle. And the last part was personal action planning. And then I would do a coaching session based on their action plan in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So, and then it would then, then when, so if they were wanting to look at time management or assertiveness, then something, they would, they would identify something. And then I would put those ideas together and develop another workshop. So it was very organic, really. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like you were, I mean, like you said before, I right? bring in the coaching approach yes. everywhere you went. Yes. Sprinkling, coaching everywhere. <laughs> I'm the coaching wizard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And oh, I mean, there's so many places we could go now, but maybe let's just go straight to coaching, actually, because that's like, what's your... How, what's your coaching practice like right. now and how has it evolved? Right. So my coaching practice is a, is is an eclectic mix of, which you won't be surprised to hear, will you? <laughs> so it, it, so it, it includes some organisational work, with, mainly with healthcare professionals. So that would involve um, mainly nurses or doctors and, and the coaching would be around an aspect of their work. Um, and then I do some career coaching and interview coaching. So I have an ebook called The Art of Interview Skills, which is published on Bookbone, which 
um, which is a which I enjoyed, which I'm going to write. I'm going to write a proper book, not a proper book, an ebook is a but you know what I mean. I'm going to write a book about interview skills. I love interview skills. Yeah, and you said you said it's been downloaded like two hundred and eighty thousand times or something on one of the things yes. I read about you, something like that. So yes. tell, like, I don't know Book Boon actually. So tell me about that and like, how did that? How did you? How did you end up writing it? And, and well, some, yeah. somebody contacted me and said that the, 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 I wrote, wrote some articles for the hospital doctor newspaper, and somebody had googled interview skills and my name had come up. So they contacted me and asked me if I'd like to write a book for them. And BookBoon, they're a Danish company um, who have offices in several countries. Um, they've got one in London. Um, and they asked me if I would like to write a book on interview skills. So I wrote an online book. Um, and um, yeah, it's been downloaded like 325,000 times. Wow. Um, I wish I had a pound for every download. That's <laughs> not the way that it works in um, in 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 the in their model. But I, what it, what it did was it gave me a deadline, and it gave. I also thought my clients. It's I can say download that because they can download it for free. You can pay for it. Or you can download it for free with adverts in. Um, and um, so yeah, I, I trained as um, um, a fireworks coach. Mm. Um, and so I use the fireworks approach for career coaching. But I, I would say I, I work with people at every stage during their career. So I have some clients who are not sure about if the university course is right for them or not, or they're leaving university, going for their first job. Um, I sometimes do some personality profiling using Myers-Briggs with them to help them understand themselves um, and to think about what are the sort of careers they might like to have or encourage them to go fishing, which is one of the tools that you have in, in, in career coaching. So, you know, if you go fishing and you have one rod, you only get one fish. If you go out with a big net and you cast it and you pull it in, you might get a couple of fish and a boot and a bit of seaweed and a few shells. And in there, there might be something that's really valuable. So that's what I encourage people to do. Go fishing and gather as many ideas as you can about the sort of work you might like to do and then let's see which one you might like to pursue so there's at that early stage of your career and then when someone's in a job providing them with some support in their new job um then there's um if someone's changing their job um, or going for promotion and then there might be some skills coaching around around that or if they're having any difficulties often leaders have difficulty in managing people so I'm sure everybody who's listening or that will resonate with yeah. <laughs> um and um and then there's going on maternity leave so I'll do maternity coaching helping somebody prepare to go on maternity leave then coming back from maternity leave then the confidence boost that sometimes women need when they're coming back from maternity leave yeah, and and uh, well, for obvious reasons, you might even be able to hear that that reason uh, in this uh, in this episode because my daughter's somewhere around the flat and she's yeah. not that old. You know, I've been really with my wife. You know, she, it's an incredible transition to go through um, for you know for anyone to become a parent, but particularly for women because of those things, that, those stages that you've just described. And uh, you know, maternity coaching. I know it's it, it's one of the like big menu bits on your on your website one of the buttons that people would see if they if they land there and I guess and it was actually a question so we have the coaches journey community is a, is a group of coaches who 
I do some work with and and they also support the podcast. And one of them sent in a one of them when I told them all that that I was um, speaking to you wanted to ask about that really that maternity coaching kind of how did you start doing it? How did it become a thing that you talk about? And and on that on the website, like I really liked and, and it resonates from I think from my wife's experience, but also from clients I've had those kind of particularly three stages that that happen when you're in yes. that transition. How did that evolve and and how do you work with a client who comes to you in that way? That's a lot of questions there, Fiona. Right, okay. So so answer whatever whatever feels right. So and actually, I should say for paternity coaching as well, because, you know, I think it's um, something which da- new dads. Well, the thing, you know, when I was, I, I mean, at my journey to having my lovely boy, Jamie, wasn't an easy one. It took six years. I had two miscarriages. I never thought it was going to be a mum. And we were just saving up for um, for uh, IVF because I was too old to have it in the National Health Service. I was 42 when I had Jamie. Um, and I, I remember um, I was I was running training, I was running a supervision course um, with a group of people over six months. And um, I didn't see them for a few months. And obviously I got larger. I was like a space hopper in the end. I had a, you know, I had a huge bump. And what I noticed was people's questions or comments got more and more negative, as in um, I would sort of have closing closing so the way I would close the course would be something you're looking forward to and then I would if some so if somebody said oh I'm looking forward to that I might say oh that's interesting and somebody would say oh you'll not be able to do that before long when you've got a baby so the and I and and, and I think people were trying to be kind but and I just thought well there's a lot of negative language um and I've I'd heard that with a few people so I, just, I made a few notes. I always go everywhere with a little notebook to write ideas down. And I just thought, right, there's a phase before you go to maternity leave where there's organising your workspace, there's organising your work to hand it over, and also things like getting your CV ready in case you decide to change your job or you don't go quite back, capturing the things that you've done since you started the job because often when women are going on maternity leave they might have been in the organization for a few years and not you know their cv is different then to how it might be now so capturing those thoughts and also to think about when you're on maternity leave there are great skills that you learn so capturing those as well so that was the first phase then there's the being off and thinking about coming back to work so you know organizations have touch 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 base days don't they um so there was that bit to be able to have someone to talk to about that the concerns you might have um and then there's the actual being at work and coping with it and the confidence and and so I think one of the things I'm really great at as a coach is helping people with their confidence so I know I'm interrupting your answer to one question with another question but that really jumped out at me you know I know what we choose to go on our websites is what we choose to go on right but the first two quotes that I read on your website were both like like Fiona has helped me massively with my confidence I think it was like since I began uh, coaching with Fiona my confidence has rocketed was one thing and the other one was working with Fiona has resulted in my confidence improving a hundred percent and it's like those are not small things for people to say right and you've just said it again there and I can imagine that yes certainly for women in that period of transition when your identity is changing so much 
that, yeah. that confidence is a difficult thing to hold on to. But what do you think it is that you're doing with people um, that makes that difference with the confidence? Well, I think one of the things is 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 pausing and thinking about confidence. So I'll often say to people, there's no such thing as, but just imagine there is a confidenceometer. Yeah. So I'll I'll draw zero to ten. It's a visual analog. We use it in healthcare all the time. So I'm just drawing it now. So not to ten. Yeah, like a scale. Yeah, and I like you've got the, got the yeah. smiley so face. So where on where it, do yeah. you think you are now with your confidence? Yeah. Somebody might. Yes. Yeah. So imagine that you're going back to work and you're not feeling very confident. Where would you be? Right. So let's say they say five. A five. Okay. And where would you like to be? Oh, well, does everyone say 10 or some people just no, say kind of... that's why you ask them. Okay, nice. Yeah, I can imagine seven, eight is what most Seven or an eight, okay. Say, yeah. So, my job as a coach is to get you from there to there. Yeah. Or our job is to work together. Now, the reason why I, you always ask somebody is, some people go, I want to be a 10. And some people go, actually, six is enough. And that, and when you don't know your client very well, that gives you a real insight into where they are. And some people go, 10, I'm going to be a 20, you know. <laughs> you know, everybody's different, aren't they? So I think visual tools like that work really well. Um, and then is it about, is it about, because I know sometimes when I use tools like that, it's about, um, in some ways, what you're doing by naming the seven or whatever it was that I said then, you know, is is you really do you then get people to understand what seven would look like and and what how it yes. is so that because part of it I think one of the strange things about confidence is it's like it one and one of the things I can imagine that if you if if I was your client and I got that exercise is that um, confidence is so like slippery yeah <laughs> as a, just a thing like what do we even mean by it you know I, I got an old client of mine who's got a podcast about confidence and it's like yes. they've, they've interviewed a whole bunch of people on it now it's called two coach confidence people who want to look it up and including oh, me right. and it's like each of the you know each of the guests says something different about confidence and it's it's like it is a slippery thing but it does tend to mean something for us so I imagine but yeah. tell me if this is right that one of the things that you guiding through someone someone you guiding someone through something like what you've just described is it just makes it less of a slippery beast and more of a real thing. Yes. And I think also our conf our own confidence relates to who we are and how we feel. And as a new mother, my confident self was very different to a friend who was a new mother because we're different. And, and it's, it's really easy to compare yourself to people or to try and strive for perfectionism, which are both curses. You know, it's not, they're not good. They're not great to, to, to compare yourself or to, or to be what is perfect. Um, so really, I think it's just helping people feel comfortable in themselves and congruent. Yeah. And also having goals that they can strive for that are measurable. So, and then encouraging them to, when they get to seven, so then, so the next time, and getting them to keep a journal, you know, to keep I, a diary. Yeah, I was going to say, so then, do you, like, how do you, how do you, it, this, sorry, this is getting quite, uh, what do you call it, like, detailed, but I'm really curious about this. And I think people who are listening will be really interesting, interested. I remember when, uh, you know, we, I was just starting out coaching, having done some training. We had, like, a, one of the people I trained with, we were talking about, like, what's confidence coaching and how do you help people when they come mm. and they say they want to be more confident? And it sounds like you've, you know, obviously you've done that with people. 
So as time goes on, then you start from that place of drawing the drawing, having the visual aid the the in that case, the example we just played with five to eight or whatever it is. How do you then work with people over time to keep that in mind or to help them see that they're progressing, those kind of things? Well, that's a starting point where they, where they are and getting them to keep it. I, I always ask them if they like stationery, which, yes, every most people do. So go and buy yourself a nice a book that, that's, that's attractive to write in. And what I want you to do is download your head. Download your ideas, your thoughts. And, and when do you? How often do you recommend people do that? Or, or as often as as much as they want. Yeah. Because because I think using another metaphor, people are often a bit like a mouse on a wheel, going round and round and round and round with ideas, thoughts, negative thoughts. And actually, what what we do in coaching, I think, is we pause the wheel and we help them get off it. So so. I would go back to that, but also help people. When was a time that you were confident and and get them to look at people that they think are confident or, or yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of whole process depending on what it is that they want to be, where they are and what they want to be more confident about. But, I mean, I've got a, a, a friend, um, Richard Nugent, who wrote a book about um, confidence, and he, he says, can you remember those toys, the Weebles? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. They're like a yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So that's a bit like confidence. We you you can wobble, and it's okay to wobble, but you don't fall down mm. because they've got a firm base. And and we can all wobble about things, but our our life experience, we we have a sort of we have as human beings unique skills and abilities, and it's just. What we do as coaches is we shine a light on that, don't we? So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a really nice definition of confidence. You know, you wobble, but you don't fall down. I really like it. Um, and I interrupted. I want to. I want to hold it because I think the maternity. I want to go back to the maternity. Oh yeah, maternity. Stuff it's, yes, it's so interesting. <laughs> just that confidence piece, I think, is is really nice and practical. And um, I think with with women as well now. With so when I was a parent, when I was a new, when I had a new baby, uh, I didn't have all the social media pressures. So mm. you know, now when you see someone who's just had a baby airbrushed and looking gorgeous. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Um, and I think so so one of the things with confidence coaching is it's real. It's you know, there's a there's a lady called Gina Ford who wrote a book about parenting who's never who when she wrote it never had a child. So mm. controlled crying, I believe, is what she said. And actually, you know, babies will cry and they need cuddles, and we all have our own ways of of that there's no one way that's right. I don't think you control crying, but <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. It's all interesting, isn't it? There's so many different things to learn is this is, is the way to think about it. But just um, what, actually one of the things that I observed um, was that people uh, w- within Myers-Briggs, um, two of the areas that Myers-Briggs looks at is where you get your energy from, which is extroversion or introversion preference, and how organised and planned you like to be, which is judging or perceiving. So, if you're a person with a preference for judging, you like to be organised and planned and structured and you don't like surprises. If you've got a preference for perceiving, you're quite comfortable with going with the flow. So 
with a new baby, which one do you think is going to be more less stressful? Yeah, well, I think like the, I, one of my probably my best my best insight on parenting so far, and um, we're about seven and a half months in, is the times it has been really horrible is when I've really tried to control what's going on, and as soon as I surrender into the moment yeah. um, and it's you know from big things and difficult things to silly things like trying to get her to sleep when there's a, like an England match about to kick off in like 30 <laughs> minutes that yeah. was like she was never going to sleep because I was yeah. stressed out and as soon as you can like I could let go then the yeah. whole thing the whole thing shifted but um so yeah I think that I can totally hear how one group of people would find that experience which is so much uh well it's just so much change in such a short space of time and the other thing is, is that people with a preference for introversion or get their energy from within usually take to maternity leave much better uh-huh. because they're going to be at home with their baby where, and, and, and happy with that. Whereas people with a preference for extroversion or get their energy from people and being out and about. And especially if they were the extroversion, people with a preference for extroversion who like to be organised and planned, they would be really at risk to postnatal depression. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So it, it, that sort of thing's quite helpful in, in helping someone understand their personality, in, in which case just might be good to think about this, you know. Um, and so that that so are three phases in maternity coaching. And it's a bit like that with retirement coaching, actually. So I do I'm, I do some I, I offer people retirement coaching. So that's about thinking about just starting to think the seeds of thinking about retirement all the options there might be. So, you know, are you wanting to retire and come back to your work? Are you wanting to retire and have time off and then volunteer? Or, you know, there's all there's all sorts of, depending on all sorts of things. And then there's the bit when you are retired. And then there's the bit where you might think you want to do something else. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for people to have three or four careers now, is it? Yeah. And and so with those two, like as examples, maternity coaching and retirement coaching, you know, it sounds like there's a kind of, there's like, it's not quite a system, is it? But there's like a sequence that you've seen over time because of what you said about not planning and evolving. Was it just that you had several like uh, about to be mums or mums in maternity leave that came to you and you gradually worked with them and the same with retirement? Or did you kind of realize that you wanted to support people through those transitions how did that work come about i'm meeting people people in the workplace so some of the organizations i work at so for example st oswald's someone was coming up to retirement and so i just designed this package for them and they said this has been really helpful i thought all right perhaps i should yeah (laughs) so i mean one of the things i need to do is i need to i need to have a new website where i can well, do I need a new? Yeah, I do really need a new website. I'm I'm not great at that side of things, but um, so that I can promote that sort of that side of work because it's not something that I do a lot of. My work's always come word of mouth, so I haven't. I'm very, you know, so I've never really needed to add, you know, to promote myself. But I I, I, sh- I feel like I should do more marketing. Why? <laughs> um. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> well, we should have a coaching session about it. <laughs> Maybe we should. Um, no, well, I, I ask that for two reasons. I think that there is a good reason to want to do that. So I think that that you obviously don't need to from a... Wait, the story you're telling, you haven't said, I desperately need an extra 10 coaching clients or anything like that, right? You sound busy, um, mm-hmm. albeit COVID had a 
had an effect on that. Um, but I think that there is like a, there is a good argument. So it's, a, so it's like, it's always for coaches, you don't need to have a website or you don't need to have a particular yeah. website. I think that's always true. And there are plenty of people and we've had, had guests on the podcast who don't have websites or who just have a one page which says email me here and all that kind of thing. And there is a real, there is a, there's a thing that can't happen. Like it, it then depends, like, who do you get who comes to you? And there is some selection that will happen if you don't really have a website. Whereas if you have a thing saying, here's some retirement coaching that I do, and this is what I've learned about doing yes. it, then actually it enables some people to choose you yes. who might not otherwise. And we don't really know whether that will be better or worse, but it's it, it, if we think about possibility, there's a there's some more possibility there. And I think that's that's the thing that I always try and remember with, with marketing it's like or i had another guest who said something like um it's like i can't i'm not going to get it exactly but it's like are we doing what we need to so that people can if they want to get, am, am i doing something that gets in the way of people getting in touch with me and you could look at that and i think like i think the maternity coaching page on your website is really nice and having you know been married to somebody who's in the middle of that now i i really think i can understand how if you if you were just about to have a baby or just had one and you landed on that page, you would, you would think, yeah, wow, I could really do with some of this help. And I guess there, hang on a minute. I think I've just got another one. There's another example of why having the, the website, which says something about what you do on is good, which yeah. is that there might be some people who don't ever get coaching yeah. who would get coaching with you if they'd read that page. Yeah. You know what I mean, yeah. And I, I, I think organizations, if you think about how, you know, when, women go back to work and end up on, you know, having to take time off um, or they're not feeling confident and have a wobble. You know, if if organisations provided these sort of services, it would save a lot of uh, people being off sick. Yeah, and people leaving and people, yes. um, you know, just disengaging from their jobs, all kinds of things. Yes. Um, I don't like... I, th- I never want to make it out that it that it is necessarily for an organization easy to manage the fact that they're losing one of their people for for however many months but i think that there's there's a lot of unskillful uh responses to that to that thing that happens and so is that you know i guess there's this thing this is part of your business that you're talking about a little bit here which is um uh the work at, at st oswald's for example but also it sounds like this is happening elsewhere where you're doing some organizational work with an organization but sometimes coaching is tied into that and in yes. this example some of your work has evolved because there's someone here who's about to retire you design yes. them you make up a make up a way of working with them they say it's yes. really useful and it sounds like the the kind of the opportunity in the organization to experiment is some experiment yes. is something that you've you've really taken advantage of yes 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 so it's it's a lovely combination of pre-COVID. It's a, it was a lovely combination of going into work. Well, it still is actually going to work in organisations, mainly healthcare organisations. So I would be and working from home and also walking coaching. Um, I mean, one of the things I've done during the pandemic actually is um, I was at a coaching at work, which is um, a coaching magazine. Uh, I was at a coaching at work conference in November. And they were talking about coaching through COVID, which was, I don't know if you've heard of it, Robbie. Yeah, I have, but but for people who haven't. Right, yeah. So, so coaching through COVID emerged from a group of coaches who wanted to do something to help 
healthcare professionals when everything was really critical. And it stemmed from a coach who had been asked a question, where were the coaches when when the when the when there was the the financial crash several you know a few years ago mm. where were the coaches that could have helped ask questions or so they thought right let's do this person said let's do let's do something so they 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 formed coaching through covid which is and so they I wasn't involved at then I, I came on board about six months into the project um and and so they're they they ask coaches to apply, experienced coaches, to be able to offer pro bono coaching for healthcare professionals, for anyone who's working in the health service. Um, and and that's what they've been doing. So I've had several clients and I've done sort of six sessions. And what I've been what I was doing with one person was walking. So he was walking, he went for a walk. Um, I didn't, I just sat here, but he went for a walk because he was stuck in an intensive care unit for 12 hours with a mask on. So, um, yes, so just giving a space um, and and it's been amazing. And they have organised reflective sessions for the coaches and some amazing CPD. So um, I recently did a session um, around poetry. Mm. Um, and I wrote a poem actually about um, some coaching I'd been doing in an inter- in a critical care unit um, from that workshop actually, uh, which has been which has been lovely. And one of the things that's been amazing about the pandemic is there's been so many opportunities for CPD, isn't there? Like lots happening. Yes. I guess when lots ha- well when lots is happening, there's kind of you know there's opportunity that that happens as as well as everything else yes there's been lots of opportunities i mean in in the health service there's been nothing for our doctors and nurses anymore because they've had no time for anything but working and looking after patients so offering this has been you know i think it's been it was a it's a great thing to be part of and then i've been doing some work uh, for a trust um doing coaching and coaching teams um, and that's that's been I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, and I mean it's it's almost like thinking about your background and and the story that you've told in this conversation. There's a way in which it, like it feels like you were being in some ways you were being prepped. Mm. Like this time right now is is a, a really important time for all the things that you've been that that you've told us about. Really, you know, including yeah. death and palliative care, including the work you've done to train and support nurses mm-hmm. and and hospital and hospice staff and all you know we know the values for well-being and health of yes. things like coaching but there's never been a time like this in the nhs i've never uh, our healthcare professionals today is july july the 26th 7th our healthcare is on its knees it really is yeah it's really worrying um because there's another wave coming and they're really struggling, really struggling. Mm. So, um, for people who are listening, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't know if the coaching through COVID is 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 continuing, like, or if they're still looking for people. People who are listening who kind of hear that, and obviously it'll be a little bit. It'll be later by the time they by the time people yes. are listening. But is it still going, or or what would you it recommend is. that people could do to kind of to make a contribution? Because I think there are a lot of people who, you know, I think in a way 
healthcare professionals have never been in the public's consciousness and mind as yeah. much as this. Yeah. You know, I don't know, maybe the maybe the the AIDS pandemic would have been a time, but I don't think so, because it's like it's so it's so it's so much everywhere that I doubt people have ever been there as much. And there will be a, a lot of people out there who want to make a contribution. And and what would you recommend for those people who Well want you to can come for, for coaches but they want experienced coaches because it's tough listening to what's happening. Um, and if you don't, and, and also they don't want newly qualified coaches because it's not about offering a model. It's about being present and letting people talk and, and giving them a space, really. That's in essence what it is. Um, sometimes people want to talk about their careers, but, but the essence of it is that. So it's, if you contact coaching through, if you go onto the Coaching at Work website, um, and it's coaching through, it's CTC, coaching through COVID. There may well still be, I think there probably will be, because this is going to be going on for, for, for quite a long time. Yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, we'll put links to that in the in the show mm-hmm. notes and things. And, it, you know, I just think we don't know. Yeah, we don't know what the impact is going to be. And, and the healthcare professionals, it's like, nope, of course, the system and the people are are on their knees because it's been 18 months non-stop and yes nothing was prepared for this well people had to cancel holidays days off because shifts had to be covered especially in critical care and intensive care and they just did because that's what they do yeah because their service you know doctors but the, the impact is the the impact is um would you like would you like to hear my poem yeah, yeah, of course. Is that what it's so, about? It's about the impact? It's Well, what it is, yes. So what it is, is is I was doing some work in a critical care unit and I was trying to encourage the senior nurses who used to meet regularly face-to-face meetings and they would do some learning together or they'd look at problem solving. And all that's gone because they're just literally ships that pass in the night mm. because they're just... Um, managing day to day and changing shifts all the time so and I did some face I did some face-to-face sessions uh, we called it compassionate listening um or, or reflective spaces um but people said they were too busy so mm-hmm. I did some uh, sessions uh, and I mean let's just catch it like that that could be it any organization really like one of the, you must have this as well one of the conversations you often have about training about development about coaching is that i'm too busy for that thing yes uh, and we know you know i guess it's our job in some ways to yes. remind people that that's perhaps the time that they desperately need it most so this poem's about it's called we're busy too busy and it's about people saying that and explaining why and then stopping and then experiencing so um which i think is the essence of of what we're we're providing we're busy too busy to stop right now our patients need us so just what and how can we stop to think beyond our clinical space we breathe in through our masks sweating too hot on our face we watch our patients fighting to live we have no option but to give and give on iPads, our patients are forced to say goodbye. No loving hand-holding feels like a lie. Every ounce of our care has been spent at a cost. Days off and holidays promised to loved ones lost. So how can you ask us to stop? We're busy, too busy 
But when we did, you captured our thoughts and lifted the lid. We looked into the screens at each other on Teams. Separated by this relentless virus, our inward scream, the space of being together stopped us in our tracks. Some space, some healing, we won't look back. Mm. Thanks so much, Fiona, for reading that. It's the first poem on the Coach's Journey podcast, hopefully not the last. And I could feel about partway through, I noticed myself like really dropping into it. You know, and I think there's something about there's something about poetry, isn't there? We've talked a little mm. bit about music. It's like I could have a go at answering this, but I'm curious what you would say. Why do you think a poem is a really is like a powerful way for you to express those things that you just expressed? Well, um, it was very present for me that I was coming to the end of this piece of work. And when I was saying to people I was leaving, people were saying, but we need you now. We're just starting to do this. And I thought I needed a way of capturing it. Um, and I'm, I'm sending that to the place I was working. And I, and one of the I shared it with one of the nurses yesterday who said, please send it to, to my manager because they need to hear this. I think it's, it's just a different, it's a different way of expressing it, isn't it? Um, yeah, and that, and that was in the poetry workshop for coaching. Mm. So it was, yeah. It's, I mean, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I, I, I think I'm going to do more of it. I'm actually writing a book about um, my experiences in the pandemic. I've been interviewing some people to think about strategies that people have. You know, a lot of people have changed the way they've been doing things. Um, one of my best friends, who I call, her chapter will be called Queen of Mints and Dumplings, because that's what she did to help people. She made mints and dumplings. <laughs> and she used to be a, a city tour guide, and, and she danced every night. She was retired, and she never would be in. And she had gone from that to, to just staying in the house. And, and, and she's now starting to go out again. But, you know, it was such a diff, you know, such a difference in her life. And just talking about what things did she learn and 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 just I want to weave in some coaching tips as well. So so I'm 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 writing that at the moment. Um I'm part of a writing group. I've been part of a group called How to Be Brilliant, which is a Facebook um a Facebook group. Uh, Michael Heppel is an author from the Northeast who's written How to Be Brilliant, Flip It. He's amazing. And he's he he started this group off, which I was part of from last February and then COVID, the pandemic hit and the group got really, and he's been a positive light. He's broadcast once a week throughout every everything. Um, and he's 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 been doing some writing uh, workshops, which have been brilliant. So I'm, I'm in, really enjoying that. Yeah, uh, you could, don't, you don't have to do this, but like, I just thinking, just want to catch that, the poem and, and what the, the nurse said, it's like, there's a way in which you could you could write I'm not sure you'd want to do this but you could write a poem at the end of every workshop or every intervention that you did or every coaching client and what like I'm not sure I'd want to say that I would do this but like no. what a thing it would be as a client to receive some kind right. of creation at the end of an engagement saying here's here's what I sat down and thought about you and here's what I, I made 
Do you like, know, I, I was coaching, I'm doing some retirement coaching with a lady in France, one of my clients at the moment, and her husband her husband died um, about three months ago. And we had a cup of tea yesterday to reconnect with the coaching. Um, and um, I did think about writing her a poem, actually, because uh, you watch sometimes people, you watch them change during a, you watch them change during a session, don't you? Um and it's more visible in this medium than it is if they're sitting opposite you for some reason. Ah, interesting. What do you? Th- so you th- you think that there's something you can see more online that you don't necessarily see in person? Um. Yeah, I don't know why, but I just think it's very very concentrated online. Right. Yeah. Um. And you can also, you can make lots of notes without it being intrusive. Whereas when you were face to face, if you were making notes, you could see, couldn't you? So true. It's so true. As I have been doing during this call. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point. That, that There is something different. I guess I just never, you're right. There's like a, you've got that kind of, you know, whatever someone has chosen as their framing of them, you've got that very concentrated thing. And also, I guess you're more, we're probably more concentrated into sight than we are if we're in person because if we're in person we've also got well sight and sound i guess we've got more senses available when we're in person as well well what's interesting is i used to do telephone coaching and telephone supervision and i didn't use skype um and then when zoom then when the pandemic just before the pandemic happened i was really worried about my mum and the nursing home and um, i've been I've done some training in EFT, emotional freedom therapy, tapping. I don't know if you've heard of it. Tapping. Yeah, yeah. Again, I have. We, like just through um, a strange sequence of events. But ju- I think just for people who haven't heard of it, again, do you want to just give a little intro yeah. to that as well? Because so, so tap- it's, it's so interesting, tap- right? Tapping is 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 we have different meridian points in our body, so it's a it's a bit it's a bit like it's described as emotional acupuncture, and what you do is is you tap on these meridian points, um, and it's a way of um, expressing uh, feelings or concerns or patterns and creating new ones. So if you look up, there'll be an EFT practitioner in your area. So the guy I had done the level one training with, I don't want to be a practitioner. I just wanted to use it for myself. And as you know, it might have been a tool I could share with my clients, but not in a a, a deep therapeutic way. Um, And um, he said, well, we can certainly do a session. So, you know, all the news was coming and nursing homes in Italy and I was just really worried and I was getting really anxious. And I, so I thought some tapping would help. So he said, well, we can do it on Zoom or that there's a therapy room that, you know, it was always more expensive. Oh, no, I, I said, I don't do Zoom. So I'll pay for the therapy room, which now seems bizarre. <laughs> so we had the therapy. Anyway, then... Um, my introduction to Zoom really was he started off a online tapping group three times a week when the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. And there was a group of about eight of us who would meet uh, Monday lunchtime, Wednesday evening, Friday morning, if you could. And we would tap on anything. It was called intentional tapping. So it was t- tapping on whatever was happening just to let go of it and diffuse it. Um, so. 
really, I'm now quite the girl about Zoom. I love it. Yeah. But I was so negative about it before. I think I was a bit scared of the um, technology. But I really like it now. And I think it's changing the way I'm working because I really like it and I'm really comfortable with it. And one of the things I think I'm really good at doing, I'm part of, I'm a member of the Association of Coaching and there's a health and social care group which meet once a month. And it was last night we met, a co-coaching group. And what so it's, I know, it's for coaches who work in, yes. in health and social care? Yes, yes. So Association of Coaching has lots of different themed groups. And you would, so you'd, you'd meet as a, a big group. So sometimes there's 16 people. Last night there was 10. And there'd be a question we'd talk about. And then you'd go off into Zoom rooms to do some co-coaching. And what I noticed was some people were really uncomfortable with this space. And, of course, that transfers. It would transfer onto your client. It transferred into the co-coaching. And one person who was a very accomplished professional, she started off by saying, Right, well, um, yes, I'm the coach. Um, and, of course, we're not face-to-face. And I said, hang on, can we pause a minute? We would never meet face-to-face because you're in Wales and I'm in Newcastle. Isn't it fabulous that we're here today? <laughs> so why don't we make the most of it? So what I noticed was some people are so worried about it. And I think what we have to think about as coaches is how that transfers into our client space. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's like, it's so easily done, you know, this is a, yes. a, a, a kind of semi-trivial example, but I did some, we did some antenatal classes um, in, and we did them online because that was the time during the virus. And I, as someone who's done quite a lot of work online, I was really aware of that thing that you've just said, but the person running the NCT classes was constantly essentially apologizing for being online and explaining to us what we were missing out on by not being in person. And, you know, we didn't know any better. And exactly. there was, it only made the, it only slowed down the learning. Um, yes. You know, and I think it's the same. It's like, it's it's really important to, well, I guess what we're saying probably is it's, it's really important to um, practice so that we're comfortable in an environment that we're, the yes. environments we're coaching in, but also that it's important to be aware of how our discomfort and brings us almost full circle back to supervision, right? Yes. Be aware of how our, our discomfort um, can can pass on to the clients. And actually, to make the space your own. Yeah. So, you know, feeling comfortable, make looking at yourself before you start the session, feeling comfortable with... And actually it's okay and if and actually if you feel uncomfortable talk to somebody about it so that they can help you feel comfortable our brains focus on what we say so you know you would be going some people would go to antenatal class and if you didn't know any differently you'd suddenly feel like you were missing out whereas because they said it yeah rather than saying you know don't apologize just be yeah absolutely yeah I was just thinking about, I think we, we, we talked about this before we switched on, but it's like for people, we'll, we'll put the video up at some point, but first of all, people will listen by audio and you're talking about be comfortable in yes. the space you're in. Yes. And you are in what looks like to me a wonderful space to be comfortable <laughs> in. Um, people who are listening, like in the back, it's, it's colourful. It's like a really colourful cushion I can see and some really nice stones and books and the picture yes. of Ben uh, Zander with Fiona and yes. a computer and, and lots of nice pictures and, and other things. I, I wonder like, 
you is this the space that you do do you do you i don't know if you if you in normal times would meet clients there but it's like is or is it just a space for you and how have you created that space and and what does it feel like to be in there so this is my office i'm i'm working from home because i i've worked from home for a long time and i've chosen this space which i think is a really important thing to think about at the moment i'm constantly saying to people who i'm coaching um who are working from home at the moment um you're working from home in a pandemic you that isn't the environment you would choose to work in because people you know it's a bit like homeschooling some people choose they've never their children have never gone to school they chose to homeschool homeschooling during the pandemic was completely different it was during the pandemic it was an emergency situation and i think they're two really important things we need to separate out so this is my space, and I love it. There's a mermaid over there. There's an elephant over there with a visor on. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I love it. I used to have some clients would come here, um, but I think now I probably won't. I think I'll, I'll, I'll use Zoom. I might go and see clients and maybe do walking sessions or go into organisations. Um, but I, I like this space. And, and why do you think you won't go back to seeing clients in person there? Well, I will see clients in person, but they won't come. I won't have them coming to my office anymore. Uh, what, and why not? Um, well, very practical reasons. My office is in my house. Yeah. So I have found myself frantically hoovering before <laughs> somebody, before somebody comes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but that's yeah. Um, I think it's a really, but that, that that speaks also to what we've just said, which you've got to be comfortable, right? You don't yeah. want to be well, and it and it speaks a little bit to something I know is part of your story, which is making your work fit with what's happening in your life. And it's like actually, I think that's a, I think I know you're laughing about it, but it's like I think that's a really good reason to not do something. Yeah, that it that it makes your life feel disrupted because yeah. I would be the same like one of the reasons I, you know there's a few reasons I wouldn't want to meet clients here but one of them is exactly that it's like we've yeah. just been talking about how the environment you're in when you're coaching is important and I, you know I know that this flat is not the ideal environment for some coaching and and yeah. yeah so I think it's a great reason and I think the other thing is is that um if someone's having an hour's coaching session or 90 minutes coaching, whatever then you have to, they have to then add on half an hour or 45 minutes to travel and settle in and, you know, get them a cup of tea or whatever, whereas people are there for the, whatever the time with a cup of tea and, yeah, they're comfortable. They're comfortable in their own space. Yeah. yeah so absolutely. it doesn't always work for everybody, though, in which case then, you know, there would be, you know that I've never ever been the sort of person who I know some coaches who used to pre-COVID meet in hotel foyers and things, but I always see people that I know, so I never I, I've never felt comfortable doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also I just I you know I used to do work in more public spaces and they're just out a little bit too much outside of my control for my liking. Like, yes. you, I mean, yes. it's not the end of the world. It's quite fun to have something sometimes to have something really disrupt a coaching session and then to see what happens in the session when that when that goes on but it can yeah. be a bit much and you don't always want to be leaving that I don't always want to be leaving that no. stuff to chance and, and and usually um there's some psychodynamic aspect even if someone's just coming for interview skills 
it may be something happened in their childhood that impacted on their confidence and then before you know it they're in a you know they're in they're, they're, they're distressed I don't want to be you know having having that happen in a, in a hotel foyer or somewhere where other people are around I just don't feel it, it makes it works for some people I think we're all different and unique aren't we yeah absolutely absolutely um so I want to. I just want to catch before we go too far on the the book you're working on that mm-hmm. you mentioned about the pandemic and the kind of lessons yeah. from it and that kind of thing. And I wonder, from the research or thinking you've done so far, if you don't mind sharing some of the thoughts that you've had about that. Like, yeah, where have you got to with it? Because it's such a. I think in some ways, probably we're going to be asking ourselves questions about this period in history for quite a long time. And well, it, yeah, I, I'm, it, I'm just really curious to know what you've discovered or or reflected on so far well it feels like a moment in time um we've never ever i mean i've got a file there which (laughs) amongst other things has the letter from the prime minister that he sent us all do you remember when we all received that oh no (laughs) you don't remember it we all received it no we all received it from from boris on headed paper and it's it says at the top the prime minister and and then i'm writing to to you to update you on the steps you are taking to combat coronavirus, blah, 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 blah. This is why we are giving one simple instruction. You must stay at home. So that's that's from last March, is it? Like yes. when it was really starting, right? Wow. Yeah. Yes. So we all received that letter and it was signed by Boris himself. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I've got all sorts of things in this file. So, yeah, so I'm interviewing people. I mean, I've met people mainly through the How To Be Brilliant group and some of the other groups I've been part of, um, who've a, a lovely lady called Kellen in America who's changed her job completely and now is uh, creating cards. Her business is called Cards That Wow. She's creating cards. She's writing a book about pokes. Um, <laughs> um, um, and... You know, I've, I've interviewed my my uh, my friend and, and ex colleague Kath Mannix, who went came out of retirement, went back into the NHS, worked supporting people. So talking about her experiences, um, I'm going to be talking to the undertaker who, because my mum's funeral was the funeral one of those funeral where you could only have six people, and and uh, Josie was the undertaker, and I had a long conversation with her when I went to organise the funeral about the difference pre-pandemic and during pandemic you know about how different funerals are and their practice and um yeah and uh, so there's going to be some stories some practical and some I want to weave in some sort of coaching strategy some, some strategies on I'm caught I think I'm going to call the book um different um something about being in we're all in different boats but in the same storm oh different boats same storm and then keep something about keeping calm and carrying on because that's what we're having to do um and i don't know if you've heard people talking about the corona coaster which is a bit like a roller coaster and that's what this virus is like isn't it there are waves and there are peaks and troughs for all of us and they're all different depending on where we are um so that's what I'm hoping my book's going to be I'm hoping that it's going to resonate with people it's been tough to write because to start off I have to write the story of my mum and that's what's been getting in the way a bit so I had a bit of a block um but I'm starting to write I'm starting to write it again now so um yeah 
and and she would be she would have been really happy that I was writing it. Um, she would have said, "Wow," because a dementia meant at the end of her life that was the only word she could say. Wow, mm-hmm. but it was very expressive. She could mm-hmm. you knew if it was a disgruntled or an amazed well, you know. Um, so. Yeah, I like writing, but actually, I think the other thing I'm I'm discovering is I like writing poetry. So I think I might have quite a few poems in this as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if that poem you read is anything to go by, that's a good idea. And I think that that I think that will resonate with people. I think that tight the title, both parts of the title, the was a different boat, same storm, and keeping calm and carrying on. Are yeah, they're both um, descriptive and and po- a bit poetic as well, which is which is lovely. Obviously. I'm aware of, of time for you and we've been talking for quite a long time and so I'm aware that a part of my job is to in the end draw this conversation to a close although that's not such a fun thing to do we could happily talk I could happily talk on for, for much longer um that's obviously one thing that's coming up for you I'm, I'm curious like what else is coming up for you in your work or or life that that you're interested in or or excited about um I think my I think appreciating um, I think one of the things that many of the things that have happened during the last 18 months have made me really appreciate um, my family, my husband, my son, our three cats and Millie, the three-legged puppy that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a lot of time walking her, listening to podcasts. There's a, a field not far from here. She had to have her leg amputated because she was knocked down by a car. And so when she's walking, she just, she hops a bit. When she's off the lead in this field, she gallops like a horse. She's she's amazing. And she's so joyous. And I think one of the things that I've really loved is the simplicity of with a dog, you throw a ball, they get very excited, they wag their tail, they run, they forget about everything else. In that moment, that's the most important thing. And I think, there's something to learn about that, about being present and in the moment. And that's what I love about coaching, actually. I love helping people be in the moment um, and, and helping them move forward to wherever they want to go. And um, Somebody once said to me, it was I had some therapy a few years ago, and the therapist said, oh, have you never thought of training as a therapist? And I said, I think you do a wonderful job, but I'm much more interested in the present and the future. Mm. So I'll often... If somebody needs to have some counselling, um, you know, that they ref- not refer them, but there's, there's all sorts of resources that people can access for that. Um, very clear with boundaries around that. Um, but I love the pre- I love helping people be in their present and their moment and the ideas of what they can, the possibilities that can move into. So I, I, what I'm hoping I'll be able to do is um, I think I'd like to do more. Um, retirement coaching um maybe maternity coaching I think maybe after what you were saying uh, I think maybe think about a, web, a new website um and um yeah maybe some podcasting actually that's something I'd be interested in yeah I mean you could definitely I I would love to listen to your conversations with both uh, undertaker and your and your friend like all those conversations you were just talking about 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 coronavirus uh, yeah. would be you know would love love to hear them and obviously well well perhaps not obvious to you I imagine you'd, you'd have some great conversations if you did some podcasting I've never ever do you know do you know what um when my little boy was uh 
probably about six or seven. You know, you, ha you have a conversation about not talking to strangers. And he said, Mum, you talk to everybody. <laughs> you know? So I, I do. I love talking to people. I guess it's just that curiosity. I've made friends with where Millie's Field is up the road. There's a bowling green. And I met, there's a man called Alan there who's 81. And he lives in a block of flats. He has no outdoor space. But his bowling green has been his space. Mm. And he has tended to that. It's immaculate. Um, so I've had some lovely conversations with him. I'm trying to persuade him to let me interview him for, 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 his, for my book, but he's a little bit reticent. He's, he's 81. You know, he has steak once a year on his birthday mm -hmm. and he's, he's not sure about <laughs> being. But he did want me to join the bowling club. <laughs> Maybe you should. Maybe I should. Yeah. Um, Fiona, it's like the, the last few minutes really beautiful. Lovely to hear what you're kind of looking forward to and... And, and excited about is there anything that we I think we've touched on so many parts of your story yeah so before we finish is there anything that either we haven't touched on that you you want to share or or that we've touched on but but haven't kind of got to something about it do you know what I mean like yeah before I, I we think bring it, the conversation I to a close just thought of something which is that one of the other things I really enjoy doing is is coaching supervision mm. um and I think that um just holding the space for coaches and shining a light on practice. When I teach supervision, often what happens at the start of a course is, or if I'm introducing it to an organisation, people will say, do we have to call it that? So I say, okay, let's have a conversation and I get them to think about what else we could call it. We'll go round the houses and guess what we'll come back to? Supervision. So I have, I break it down into supervision, so it's having a different way of looking at something, you know, supervision, um, and uh, and and it, and it's I re it's something I enjoy. You're always learning as a supervisor, um, so I think that's something I'd like to do more of. Yeah, and that's a really I love supervision. That is so much better than supervision. So I'm glad that like that is I'm glad you come back to the same place, but it's better. That's much yeah. better. Like maybe before. Um, we finished them, Fiona. There's just something about that, like from the supervision you've done, and I think you're right. Like one of the reasons I love sometimes working with other coaches is that, well, we learn from all. I learn from all my clients, but there's there's something, you know, that particular about working with other coaches because I definitely learn from them and from being with them in the in the challenges or the opportunities they're in. Are there particular things that you feel like you've learned or are there things that when you've supervised other coaches or, or perhaps you've supervised more broadly, you've seen come up again and again? Um, yeah, people being really hard on themselves, feeling that they're not doing, what they're doing is not good enough. Are they making a difference? Have they done it right? Um, and I think that when you are able to um, give someone space to unpack whatever it is and to look at it, and what I'll often do is write it down as people are saying it and then hold it up so they can see it. Because I think when you hold it in your head, you can't see it. If you write it down, which is why getting people to reflect in a book or... or, or um, um, I have a little portable flip chart that I write things on so that people can see it. Um, you can see, you can see more clearly. Um, 
I was going to burst into song there, but I won't. <laughs> Sad. We could have got the song as well just before the end, Fiona. Um, I can see clearly now. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yes. So, um, <laughs> yes. So I think, yeah. So I think in supervision, um, yeah, it gives you a, yeah. So it gives people a chance to, to see that perhaps it was, it was a difficult situation and actually you did the best you could. Can you learn from it? Always. There's always something to learn. And if you use the model, if you use the adult learning cycle, it's a cycle that's always, we're always working around it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that feels like a really important message, actually. I mean, I'm sure it's true for people probably across the helping professions, really, who often get into them because they want to make a difference. Um, and to be asking themselves, yeah, uh, that wasn't good enough. I, did I do it right? Have I made enough of a difference? Yeah, it's it's like, what do you say? It's, it was a difficult situation, but you did the best you could. And that's yeah, and, and, and it was a contribution. Yeah. It was a, and that's what I learned from being alongside people that were dying, that whatever we do is a contribution. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Fiona, I know that's that's a big, like you said, that's a big value for you. And one of the things I thought was just I was looking down, you know, I always get guests to send me some stuff about them so that I've got that. And I was looking down something that you sent me, which included, for example, a list of all the organizations you've done work with and it, the thought that went through my mind when I looked down this especially you know and because like for all the reasons we've spoken about in this conversation you know healthcare is so much in our minds right now and this list of healthcare organizations that you've worked with was long and yeah. uh, and kind of also broad like you, you've touched on that as well it just occurred to me what a massive contribution you must have made to that particularly perhaps in that geographical part of of the country like you know part of the world but yeah also generally so like amazing thank you for that amongst and also of course thank you for this amazing time that you've given us this afternoon um and for being so open about all those experiences it's been a total pleasure to have you um on the podcast it's a pleasure thank you for inviting me and um I'll, yeah thank you for all the work you're doing because the podcasts are brilliant no that's yeah it's it's really nice to hear that and um and now i can imagine the field where you might sometimes you might sometimes listen so that's really nice as well but yeah fiona thanks so much oh you're welcome thank you robbie hello everyone robbie here again Um, And before you go on to whatever else you've got planned for the rest of your day, I just wanted to let you know about two ways to support the Coach's Journey podcast. Um, I mentioned them at the start of the show too, but as you've made it all the way to the end, um, I'm guessing that you probably took took something from this episode. and you might be interested in supporting the podcast. Of course, the the easiest thing for you to do to, to support the podcast um, is to share it with someone or a group who you think might be interested in it. Um, or and or if you're if the platform that you are um, listening on allows you to write a review, write a review or subscribe to the to the podcast, because all those things obviously help more people find the podcast. But if you want to support the podcast even more than that. There are two ways to do that. One is to become a supporter of the podcast. You do this at patreon.com um, slash the coach's journey uh, and, and you sign up, you pay an amount of money every month and in exchange for that get some um, 
get some some advance notice of guests, a little bit of updates from me, and various other things. Um, you might also be interested in working with me, and this is also a way to support the podcast to keep this kind of thing going. But it also it allows you also to get a chance to get support from me in the most affordable, flexible way that I, that I've offered um, in my coaching business. Um, and that is to join the Coach's Journey community, which you can read loads more about at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. Um, like I said at the start of the episode, now's a great time to join because um, there's an all-members call on the 7th of September, which allows you to um, join at the £10 a month-ish level. Um, come along to that call, and if it's not for you, you can cancel your membership, um, and that's that's how the, the membership works. Um, membership, really, the Coaches Journey community is, is, is my way of supporting coaches to um, create thriving businesses, and thrive as people while they do it. Um, you'll get a chance to be coached by me. There's a chance to connect to other coaches who are on the on the path of doing this work that we all think is so important. We get into all kinds of things in the group coaching calls, and depending on the membership you choose, there's some one-on-one time with me available too. Um, I love the Coaches Journey community calls, and we've been going for almost a year now. I, I can't believe it, and we've had some fantastic, fantastic conversations. So you learn more about that at thecoachesjourney.com slash community. You sign up at patreon.com slash thecoachesjourney, whether you want to join the community um, or whether you want to become a supporter of the podcast. Um, but whether you do that or not, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks so much for listening, and hope you join us again sometime soon. Mm-hmm.